So I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we're in the midst of a series that we entitled Being God's People, where we talk about what God has called us to be, or who God has called us to be, I should say. And specifically, we're doing this through a series of studies in 1 and 2 Peter. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to begin reading for today's text from, chap- uh, from verse 12. Uh, verse 12 of 2 Peter, uh, Peter chapter 1, and then I'm going to read through verse 16. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time that uh, we did a little changing in our sermon schedule due to some illness and different things. So what we had planned to be last week's message is actually going to be next week. So we're kind of moving some things around. So you'll get a fuller sense of where we are going with this uh, double message series. But it's also been encapsulated well by Tracy. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about making disciples, and next week, Pastor Michael's going to be teaching us on being and becoming the disciples that Christ has called us to. So, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things." For we did not follow clearly or cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. Now, in this series, we've been talking about how we are called to recognize that we've been made into God's priests, God's princes and princesses. We're part of a royal family. We're prophets. We're pilgrims. We're God's purchased people. And we are proclaimers of this good news. But here in today's text, we're going to see kind of three main themes that we're going to kind of categorize this way. What was Peter's mission in life? What did he see his purpose as being? How did he do it, or what we might call his modus operandi? And then also, what was his motivation? So what was Peter's mission? What was his modus operandi? And What was his motivation for doing this? And Peter's mission is our mission. So let's talk about that reality. If you look there in verse 12, Peter hints at this uh, mission when he says this, Therefore, I intend always, all right, there's the language that says, here's my intention, here's my plan, here's my mission. And this is my mission, Peter says, it's to remind you, the scattered believers in Jesus Christ, Of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. 
So what are those qualities that Peter is talking about? Well, good news. I hope you kept your Bibles open, or if you have the electronic version, you'll scroll there, because what you're going to see is the qualities that Peter is talking about are everything that came before we started our reading today. And Peter is going to say this, that we are called to become and make disciples of Jesus, and that means our core mission is to be a changed disciple of Jesus Christ, and that's the qualities that Peter is referring to, because that's what he's already said. So, if you go back up to verse 4, we're going to begin reading there, where he says, he, and this is Jesus, has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now just stop for a second and let that sentence sink into you. The promises of God are given to you and to me so that we can participate in the nature of God himself. In other words, the promises of salvation and forgiveness and God's grace and God's mercy and His provision for His people and of life everlasting, all those promises were given to you to change you so that you aren't like the old person you used to be. Peter says we've been born again to a new and living hope, right? And that hope is supposed to be something that changes you so that you become like God. You become our participant in God's divine nature. And you've escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Peter is saying if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've encountered the good news of Jesus, something has happened to you in this new birth reality. You have become like Jesus and you have escaped the brokenness that you once lived in in this world. And then he goes on to list some qualities that you can see visible in the life of a person who believes in Jesus Christ. He says, for this very reason, because God's given you these promises, make every effort to supplement your faith, say, I believe in Jesus, I believe that God sent his son to live the perfect life I could not live, to die the atoning death, I could not have died, to be raised from the grave, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, to come for his children. Again, you believe those things, right? I believe in God the Father, right? We, we do the Apostles' Creed. What do you add to your faith? Virtue. uprightness, holiness, and and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, steadfastness, or staying in the faith, enduring, and to steadfastness, godliness, building your life around the reality of God, and to godliness, brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection, love. These are the qualities that should show up in the life of a person who's becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, Michael's going to preach on that next week, so I won't unpack all of that, but I want you to understand that these are the qualities of a transformed life. 
And we are to grow in those qualities. We're not simply to be changed. We are to become more and more like Jesus. Peter's made this point repeatedly and will continue to make it throughout his epistles. He says, like newborn infants, you've been given this new birth, long for pure spiritual milk so that you can grow up into salvation. In other words, let me be very plainly spoken here. If you haven't grown to be much, much more like Jesus, and you have been a believer for 25 years, there's a problem. There's a problem. Because part of what God is doing was not just to call you into a new birth, but you weren't supposed to stay as spiritual infants. You were supposed to grow up in your salvation. By the way, Peter's not only going to say that early in 1 Peter, he's going to say it at the end of 2 Peter. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter says, church, grow up. Stop acting like spiritual infants. You're supposed to be different because you've got a new birth and a new hope in Jesus Christ. And part of that growing up is understanding that your calling is to be intentionally fruitful. I mentioned this earlier, that part of our maturity is to recognize that the faith that we have been given and entrusted, somebody came and gave it to us us, somebody told us the gospel, somebody witnessed to us the gospel, somebody shared it in a sermon, somebody taught it to us in a Sunday school class, somebody broadcasted it on some television or radio station or internet stream, right? And you are supposed to take that thing that you have been given and now bear fruit. That's the intention and plan of God. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter has said this, If these qualities are, are yours and they are increasing, notice there's the growth, they will keep you from being ineffective. And the word there really is really harsh. It, it's really useless. Can you imagine that there are Christians that are actually useless? people who aren't growing in these things, they're useless to God. They've heard the good news, but for His kingdom, they're useless. He says, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, it'll keep you from being useless. The ESV made it polite, ineffective, but it's useless. The the word is very plain. I'm not sure why they didn't. I think they were trying to make everybody feel a little bit better about themselves. It's useless. Or unfruitful in the knowledge of God. What we know about Jesus is supposed to not simply be something that we are being and becoming, but it's something that's supposed to be intentionally fruitful. In other words, Peter's mission is this. I'm here, Peter says, to make you into disciples of Jesus who make other disciples of Jesus. Be a disciple-making disciple 
of Jesus. Now, we see that, believe it or not, in verse 12. Let's go back to verse 12 where we started. And now, with that context, notice what Peter says. I intend always to remind you, the church, of what it means to grow up in Jesus and become like Jesus and to have those qualities that will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. My intention, Peter says, is to keep reminding you of these things because you've been established in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, where did Peter get this sense of mission? His understanding that this is what he was supposed to do. Could it possibly be that the last words of Jesus are Peter's mission. Go, therefore, and really it's as you go, by the way, as you go, make disciples of all nations. That's Jesus' last command to the church. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Son and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice not to know, but to obey. Now, here's something I want to challenge us all with. Is there anybody, and I mean a specific person, that would say that you discipled them. And if not, what does that tell you about the church? The command of Jesus is not given to preachers only. It's not given simply to spiritual leaders. But if you, you, every one of you, have not made a disciple of Jesus Christ, that makes you disobedient to this. And can I say that the church has for far too long relied on programs to be substitutes for personal discipleship? In other words, it's easier for somebody to say, well, I invited my friend to church, and, you know, I don't know, they didn't come, they didn't magically become a disciple of Jesus. Now, inviting people is good, folks, but that's not you making a disciple of somebody. Inviting them to hear somebody else preach, okay, that could lead them into some discipleship, but that's not you actually discipling them. It's not you taking what you have been given And what you have grown in, the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and you replicating that into somebody else's life. So I'll ask you again. Is there anyone that could point to you and say, that man, that woman, that person, they taught me how to follow Jesus. And if not, why not? And by the way, notice it's not to know about Jesus, it's to obey Him. Right? So Peter's mission, and ours, is to be a disciple-making people. 
We are to make disciples who make disciples. How did he do it? Let's take a look so that we can learn how we can be doing this very thing. What is Peter's modus operandi, his methodology, his way of doing this task? What was his practice? Believe it or not, throughout uh, First and Second Peter, we can see that he does all of these things. The first and most obvious thing that Peter does is he wrote those letters. In those letters, he's teaching the church, Right? Peter is doing what he has been told by Jesus in that great commission. Go and make disciples by what? By teaching them to obey. Peter is obeying this by writing these particular epistles. And by the way, we don't have time to unpack it, but he spends a lot of time in 2 Peter, in fact, a whole chapter pretty much from, uh, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, warning the church about false teaching and how dangerous it is, and how you can end up being a disciple of untruth and things that are not of the gospel. But the second thing that Peter does is that he didn't just teach people things, he equipped them or he trained them. We know this from church history. We know this because there are people who we can trace historically back to being Peter's disciples. It's very, very likely that Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and who is John Mark, almost certainly, who left Paul's mission, ended up being picked up by Peter and becoming an equipped leader in the church, the first generation of the church. Paul, who Peter commends for his writing, would say this, that God has given to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That's a lot of things God has given to the church. To do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice who does the work of ministry? The saints. Who equips them and trains them to do the ministry? The apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, all those people, right? The evangelists. They're all there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not to just teach them about the work of ministry. Not simply to uh, help them grow in the knowledge of what might be a good ministry. It would Boy, you know, I took this evangelism class. It would be great if I actually went out there and told somebody about Jesus. But to equip the church, to train them to actually do it, so that the body of Christ can be built up, so that we can be unified in the faith and of the knowledge of Son of God. In fact, to go exactly do what Peter has said, grow up, until we look like mature spiritual adults. Uh, he says mature manhood here, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, till we grow up to look like Jesus, so that we could no longer be children tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Peter is teaching and equipping the church. And he does this by challenging people and encouraging people. Um, go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what he does. He says, Be beloved, notice how Peter addresses the people there. He's not talking to people he can't stand. You rotten people, I can't stand you. No, beloved, I love you, and I'm urging you. And the word there can mean both 
to verbally challenge or what we call exhort and encourage. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So imagine this, what Peter is saying to you, church, and to me, is he's saying, listen, church, you don't have to give in to who you used to be. There are things that are toxic to your soul, and I want to urge you to remember that, and I want to encourage you to believe it. And so he's in the business of urging people and exhorting them to come and believe the good news of Jesus. All right, we've already looked at three things. Let's just pause here. How about you and me? Are you teaching people to follow Jesus? Are you training and equipping people to follow Jesus? Are you exhorting and encouraging people to follow Jesus? Do you see how quickly Peter's modus operandi becomes very important to us? Let's keep going. What's number four? He exemplified what it meant to follow Jesus. Uh, Peter is going to call out the leaders of the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, and he does it by saying to them, I'm an elder just like you. He says, I exhort the elders or pastors that are among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, and then he's going to challenge the pastors there. But notice where he comes from. He says, I'm just like you. He doesn't say, hey, listen, guys, you have to listen to me because Jesus told me I'm Petros. He gave me a personal nickname, right? He says, guys, I'm an elder like you, but I want you to follow my example. I want you to lead like I lead. And if you keep reading in 1 Peter 5, we don't have time to unpack all of that. What he says is, pastors, don't be harsh with your congregation. Pastors, don't do your job for the money of it. Pastors, be an example to the flock that you are shepherding. He's like, do what I'm doing. In other words, follow how I lead. And Peter testifies in that last passage, and he testifies throughout his writings, and he does this commanding thing that flows from his testimonies. So go to 1 Peter chapter 5 as an example. He says, By Silvanus, who was his scribe, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, that word declaring there is actually testifying, that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Peter comes to people and he says, can I tell you a story about this old guy who used to be Peter and now this new hope that I have? And it happened because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you that I used to be an ordinary fisherman and then I became a fisher of men? because of God's grace to me. He told his story. And then Peter reminded people, go to, back to, to uh, verse 12. Peter says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I've decided after 30 plus years of ministering and pastoring, my primary job is to be like the reminder app on your phone. Most of you have been believers long enough 
that you know what you ought to be doing and who God has called you to be. My job is to be the annoying app that reminds you. And we all need that. We need one another to remind each other of who God has called us to be, what our salvation is, how we got saved, what Jesus' blood means, why there's a difference in our life now, how we have a hope for the future, and why we can trust God in all circumstances while we wait for his bodily return. We need each other to remind each other that, and Peter uses reminding a lot. Notice this kind of practice, I kind of jammed a bunch of these together because they all fit together. Peter was in the business of connecting with people and then loving those people and then intentionally unsettling people. Connecting people to people, loving people, and unsettling. So take a look at first, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. In our text today, he says, I think this is the right thing to do as long as I am in this body, to stir you up. Have you ever thought about stirring up somebody? The word there means to, to awaken or literally to drag somebody out of bed. <laughs> he says, my job is to drag you out of bed, to wake you up. Now, he's not the reminders app, he's the alarm clock, right? Right? By way of reminder, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he goes on to say, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. There's the connection point. Hey, I keep connecting with you, beloved. I love you. I love you. In both of them, I am stirring you up by way of your, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I know you're sincere in the faith, and my job is to unsettle you. You ever thought that that's God's calling on your life to not let somebody just continue in their sin or to continue in their laziness or to continue in their apathy or to continue in their indifference or to continue doing the same thing and hope that something is different? But your job is to actually unsettle somebody? Now, we've got some brewers here in our church, even though we're Baptists, camera, i do not going to identify who they are, but they're at the back right here on this side. Uh, but we've got some brewers in our, and, and, and the thing is that, that when you brew, there's all these gases that are given off, and then there's all this stuff that settles, right, down at the bottom of, of the thing. And in general, I understand in brewing, you really kind of want that process to stay where stuff settles, and then you want the good stuff to float to the top, Right? This is not brewing. <laughs> We're doing something radically different. We want to stir each other up. We don't want people to stay settled because it's easier to stay settled in our lives. By the way, the author of Hebrews says the same thing, and he says it to the whole church. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love in good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why do you gather as a church? It's because I, over the week, I have a tendency to get settled down into my selfishness, my laziness, my fear, my frustrations, my anxieties, my unbeliefs, and it's you guys' job to come and unsettle all of that. And it's my job to do that for you. 
So Peter's in the business of doing all of this. Uh, One more thing we'll draw out, and that is that he didn't do this half-heartedly or lazily. He labored at it. And that's evident throughout the text. One place we'll take a look at, at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. To what degree was Peter willing to do this work of disciple-making? With every effort. It wasn't something he did part-time. He labored at the business of discipling. Now, church, can I just ask you again? Don't take this in cognitively and forget to ask yourself, am I doing that? Do I teach? Do I exhort? Did I unsettle somebody's spiritual life this last week in such a way that they were more like Jesus? Did I work hard at it? Or did I just sort of float and drift and give in to my own settling? So Peter's mission is to make disciples. His modus operandi is to do all of these different things and and much more that we don't have time to unpack, but I just wanted you to see how he used all these different tools. What was his motivation? What's his motivation to do this? Well, I'm going to give you at least four motivations that Peter unpacks. His motivation for discipling First was that he had a Lord. He had someone he was following. And Tracy showed this really beautifully in the uh, children's gospel time when she pointed out that it starts with people who are following Jesus and they recognize that Jesus was a disciple-making Savior. And if you're following him, then you've got to be in the business of making disciples as well. You've got a Lord over your life. You understand that this thing, this great commission is given to you, not to some other part of the church, but to you personally. Jesus is talking to you when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever things I have commanded you. That commission is given to you if you're going to call Jesus Lord. That's your job. It's my job. It's the job of all who call Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord. So that's one motivation. There's a command, an imperative. But Peter also mentions that he had some other motivations. One of the motivations was his limits. Peter understood something about his life. That the kingdom was still coming, but Peter could only preach to so many people. Peter could only disciple so many people. Eventually, Peter was going to die, and and according to church history, he would die dramatically refusing to be crucified right side up and following his Savior in that way. He was not worthy, he told his executioners, and he asked them to crucify him upside down because regular crucifixion wasn't brutal enough. Peter understood something about the limits of his body. He knew that time 
was ticking. He knew that he had to make disciples who made disciples. Because time was advancing. We see that, by the way, in the text. He, he knew there were limits on his body. He said, I think it right. As long as I am in this body, every breath that Jesus has given me to stir you up. Did you catch that the first time we read through that? I have breath right now today. It's the right thing for me to do to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, we don't know how Jesus did that, but Peter had a clear message from Jesus that he was going to die soon. How would you live this week if you knew that at the end of this week you would be gone? Peter sat down and wrote a letter to make disciples to the church. He understood his mission. There were limits on his body. There were limits to the reality of the mission because someday even that mission would come to the end. As Dr. John Piper has said, listen, worship is the ultimate goal of God, not mission. Someday... All the missionary efforts of Christ's kingdom for thousands of years will come to an end, but worship will extend forever. So Darwin's got a job in eternity. Me, I don't know, maybe I'll mow lawns, right? There's a reality that comes to us when we recognize there is a kingdom that is advancing and there is a mission that needs to be completed. Uh, Writing to the church, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, Peter wrote this. He said, since all these things, since the world, as we know it, is going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? If you know that nothing here is going to last, what sort of people should you be? Well, you should live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the coming day of God. Waiting for and hastening, hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If you understand that this world is temporary, guess what? You say, part of my job is to make as much of God's kingdom as I can, and it's my job to hasten its day. Now, by the way, uh, you go to Matthew and, and Jesus has said this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. New tribe's mission, now called Ethnos 360 uh, in, in their new uh, label for themselves, their job, they say, is to do this. It's to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth because they believe it will enact and trigger the end of all time. When all peoples have heard, well, every believer should believe that. <laughs> it's our job to make disciples until the new heavens and the new earth come in. So Peter understood that he had a Lord, he had limits, 
and he wanted to leave a legacy. Go back to uh, verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. He says, I will make every effort, there's his laboring again, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. I want to ask you a question. What spiritual legacy will you leave behind? Will people be able to say, that woman, that man, they spared no effort that when they were gone, I could recall the good news of Jesus. I could know what it means to follow Jesus. They gave every effort to that end. What legacy will you leave? No, and, and church, hear me. I am not giving us a corporate pass out of this. This is not a question for us corporately. Not first. It's a question for us individually. And one of the primary things that we see as a problem in our corporate church life is that not enough individuals have understood that their job is to leave a spiritual legacy. You may or may not have biological children. All of you can have spiritual children. People who follow Jesus because of you. And they follow Jesus in the way that you follow Jesus. There's not a single person that doesn't have that capability. In fact, you've been commanded to do it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul would make this clear to Timothy. He says, what you heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, you take what you heard and you entrust that truth, that good news of the gospel of Jesus, to faithful men who will do what? They will teach others also. You shouldn't just have spiritual children. You should have spiritual grandchildren and spiritual great-grandchildren until Jesus' return. You should have that reality. Do you? Are there people who would say, I know and follow Jesus because of this person and what they taught me, I have taught other people. And those people have taught other people. And equipped them and trained them and labored and stirred them up and, done, and prayed for them and did all these things. Folks, our bank accounts, our houses, everything that we find good in this world will someday either be consumed by God's holy fire or made pure into what God has actually intended it to be. The question is whether or not we're leaving that spiritual legacy. Part of the invitation that our church is experiencing at the crossroads that we are at as a church now is to ask ourselves what are the essentials of being a church and whether or not we will strip things down to make this an essential reality.
We can do a lot of good things and miss the essential things. So Peter did this because he had a Lord, he had limits, he had a legacy, but most of all, because he had encountered life itself. He had encountered life itself. He had good news to share. Peter explains this, by the way, in the last verse that we read. He said, here's four, here's my motivation. For we, he says, did not follow cleverly devised myths. The good news about Jesus is not a myth. It's not a story. It's not a news article. It's a reality thing that happened. We were there. He says, we were eyewitnesses to it. And we were eyewitnesses to what? to His majesty, to His glory. Many scholars believe that Peter is referring not just in general to everything he saw in all the days of Jesus' life, but specifically to the moment of transfiguration on the mountain when Peter saw who Jesus really was for a tiny fraction of time when all of the earthliness of Jesus was stripped away and in a moment Peter saw who Jesus is. He saw life itself. Now, we may not have had that kind of a dramatic encounter on the Mount of Transfiguration, but I believe that every believer has encountered the life-giving reality of Jesus Christ. If you haven't, this is your invitation to come to believe that God sent His Son who loved you so much that He would give His life in exchange for your sin. And that if you will but believe in Him and repent of your sins and turn back to God the Father, you can encounter the saving grace of God and live with Him forever in glory that will continue to expand for eternity. And if you have encountered that in some measure, don't you want other people to as well? Have you ever thought about what it's like to encounter some beauty and just to want to hoard it for yourself? Maybe it's a violin concerto you hear on a record or it's a sunset or it's some beautiful cityscape lights at night. Isn't there something inside you in those moments that longs to turn to somebody? It's like, do you see this? <laughs> do you see that sunset? It's so amazing. Look at those redwood trees. They're massive. Can you believe that God did that? Look at the size of that wave on the ocean. Look at the vastness of that mountain. Look at the beauty of what I can see inside a microscope or through a telescope. The vastness of the galaxies. And if you have that urge in the things that God has created, don't you have that urge when you open up this book and meet Jesus. 
Oh, I want you to meet my Savior. I want you to know what it's like to follow him. He's life. And apart from him, there is no living. Don't you want that for other people to experience that reality? And if you do, that's the invitation for disciple making. That's what we do as disciple makers. We're inviting people to encounter life itself. So I'm going to pray with that invitation in our minds and our hearts, and we're going to go to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father God, grant that we would, as your people, having encountered life itself, be drawn to invite other people to know and experience that light. Father, I don't want us to leave with guilt or shame or condemnation. There's no condemnation in you, but I want us to hear anew and afresh the calling that you have given each one of us to make disciples who make disciples. Not just as a corporate group of people, but, but as individual believers. And where we've failed, where I've failed to equip us to do that, we ask for your mercy and grace. And we have a greater calling, and we're asking you, God, to be at work in our church. Not only to be and become the disciples that you have called us to be, but you would do a work of greater grace and make us into disciple-making disciples. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to the Lord's table, we're not saying much that is radically different from what I've already said to you. But it's important for us to remember these realities. Here in simple grape juice and bread we are reminded of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are sinners who need God to shed His blood to pay the penalty for our sin because we can't. There's no amount of good works that we can do that will absolve us of our sin, that will make us right with God, that will allow us to have an earned place in heaven. That doesn't exist. So the Lord's Supper is a reminder that each one of us are sinners. But it's also a reminder that God has sent His Son to do that which we could not do. To pour out His blood to wash us clean. For His body to be broken as an object of God's wrath so that we don't pay the penalty in our bodies. So that we can have bodies that live forever, that are life everlasting in and of themselves. Here at the Lord's table. We're reminded of these realities. We're reminded in the same way that Peter reminded the disciples of who they were called to be. And we're reminded that the grace that God has saved us by changes us. That now we live in relationship with Jesus, that He is not in the grave, that He has risen. And He says, here, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. He is present giving us His grace. So here, we remember all of these things, and here we encounter Jesus now. And we do it with anticipation. Because we do this until the real feast begins. 
In a very real sense, the Lord's Supper is always an appetizer. It's a spiritual hors d'oeuvre. It's a reminder of the already what God has done and the not yet what God is going to do. For we partake of this supper, according to God's word, until the Lord returns. We proclaim His name until He returns. We don't just do this as individuals. We do this as family. See, everything I've just described didn't just happen to me. It's happened to you. And He's inviting us together as a family into a family meal. For that reason, we ask that if you aren't sure if you're part of the family, you don't know if you believe in Jesus Christ, that maybe this is not the time for you to partake of this. Because this is a family meal. It's for people who know and follow and believe in Jesus, having entrusted their salvation to Him. If you've got a broken relationship in the family, maybe you're not following the father of the family. You're walking in disobedience. Unless you're willing right now, right here in the time that we're about to give you, to confess your sins and to cry out for greater grace and to repent and come home, which, by the way, you can do that, then don't partake of this, for to do so, according to Scripture, is to drink judgment upon yourself, to not discern the body and blood and its purposes in your life. If you have broken relationship with your fellow believers and you don't know what God is doing in that relationship, then at least commit to go and make that right. But don't pretend to come to the Father's table while being angry at your brother and sister. To do so is to despise the fact that Jesus has bought them with His blood and with His body as well. So here, we invite you into all of these realities, to experience and to express these realities. We ask Jesus to make these things evident, true, and deeply effective in our life. So to that end, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the blessing of the Lord on these elements. They will stay the same. They will not be changed, but they will become, through God's grace, a communication of His grace to you and to me. So after I pray, Darwin's going to lead us in a time of reflection as the elements are distributed. We invite you to keep those elements with you, to hold on to them. And then after we've all had a time of reflection and a time of prayer together, then we will partake of the elements uh, after they've been distributed. Let's pray. Father God, take now this ordinary bread, this ordinary cup, and use them to that end which you have determined by your Son. Here we cry out to ask to meet and encounter you and your grace and your mercy afresh and anew. Here we encounter pardon for our sin and reminder that what you have done is enough and that we can't add to it. Here we are reminded that you have bought us to be a part of a spiritual family with your son's blood. Here we are reminded that we no longer have to carry condemnation and shame and guilt and the penalty for sin, for you have paid it all. And here we are reminded that we are invited to a forever feast, a banquet that will go on forever as your children. Oh, Father God, do all of these things through this supper 
by your grace, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.